Well, it is always a privilege to turn to God's word. Join me in John chapter 15. John chapter 15, and that song was appropriate. The prayer that we would see the depth of God's love for us that applies to this text. It is a powerful text. We started it last week. It's John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17. John 15, verses 12 through 17. Let's read the text together, set in our minds as we do begin, starting in verse 12. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. Somebody last week told me if they wanted to be convicted, they would have come to church. It's a convicting text, convicting text. This is Jesus' call for his people to turn from their selfish pride and arrogant individualism and the focus on ourselves, turn from all of that into love and cherish and care for not the world of unbelievers, but to love our fellow believers in Christ. We see that clearly, verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another. Bookended in verse 17. This I command you, that you love one another. The call is clear. And as we saw last week, when we put this command to love one another within its context of Jesus' final farewell address, when we connect this call to love with what Jesus has just taught, in verses 1 through 11, and what Jesus will teach in verses 18 and following. It becomes clear, love between fellow believers, that command, though it's overlooked often, neglected often, this command cannot be overemphasized. What's the connection? Why do I say that? Well, the first connection is the connection between love one another and Jesus' parable of the vine and the branches. The connection is this. According to that parable, love for one another is the necessary and most visible fruit of every branch attached to the vine. So we see in verse two, notice, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Fruitless branches are discarded. But every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. And what's the fruit Jesus is talking about here? Well, look at verse 12. Again, this is my commandment. This is the fruit of obedience to love. This is my commandment that you love one another. So we summarized it this way last week. Life in the vine, life in the vine must lead to a love for the branches. 
Love for one another is the visible evidence that you have been grafted to Christ and that Christ through his spirit has been grafted to you. The visible evidence, the proof that God's saving sap flows through you. We looked at all those passages where there is no love for the brethren, there is no true abiding saving faith. That's the connection with what has come before. But there's another connection. This is a transition. The connection between loving one another and what Jesus is to warn about in verses 18 and 19. The connection is this. Love for one another is the necessary shield that will fortify us when the world's hatred for Christ's gospel rises against us. We must love one another, verse 12. Love one another, verse 17. Why? Because of verse 19, read it. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But we have a huge problem. The problem is this, we are not of this world. We will not receive the love from the world. In fact, the opposite, the world hates us. So love amongst the brethren is the only counter against the world's hatred of Christ's gospel. This is why Jesus focuses so much attention on loving one another the night before he dies. It's a theme over and over again. He knows both the external threat and the internal threat. He knows his apostles will face hatred from the world. He knows that's coming. But he also knows the temptation of disunity amongst God's people. And amazingly, out of those two threats, it is not the world's anger, it's not the world's hatred that can destroy the church. That's not the threat. The greatest threat to God's people is a lack of love for one another. The greatest threat is when resentment finds itself within the family of God. Arrogant animosity and bitterness and selfishness, that proud individualism, that is what rips churches apart. This is why Paul was filled with so much joy whenever he saw a church abounding in love for one another. Think of Colossians chapter one. Colossians 1, and remember the context here, Paul's in prison, chained, and yet he's joyful. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why, Paul? Why are you filled with joy and thankfulness? Verse 4, it's because we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. I'm rejoicing because you're saved. True faith. But now notice what Paul connects to the Colossians saving faith. How did he know that they had truly come to salvation? Here's how, here's what brought him joy. And because they had the love for all the saints. It's a bounding love. It's the same connection that Jesus makes with what comes before in chapter 15. Life in the vine produces a love for the branches. But there's another reason why Paul rejoices here. 
rejoices at the love that this church has for one another. Chapter two puts it this way. He's rejoicing because they've been knit together. They're united in love. This church possesses a good discipline because of that love with one another. They possess a good discipline, a solid foundation. And note this, the stability, the perseverance, the endurance of their faith in Christ. They're faithful against the world. Why? Because of their love. That's what a love for one another does. It makes visible our faith in Christ, which bolsters our assurance of salvation, which leads to a boldness of witness. While also buttressing and uniting the church in perseverance together against any gospel hostility that might, might rise up against us. That's the love-filled church that Paul rejoices in. But then we have an example of the flip side, the loveless church. We see that in 3 John, the loveless church led by Diotrephes. And just listen to how different the tone is of this letter written by John. Diotrephes, who loves, he has a love, but it's not for one another, who loves to be first among them, selfish love. He does not accept what we say. For this reason, when I come, I will call attention. I am going to rebuke him, reprove him. I'm not rejoicing. I'm readying myself to call him out, specifically his deeds, which he does. And what are these deeds that necessitate John's visit, his apostolic reproof? Here it is. He himself does not receive the brethren. He does not love one another. And even more, he forbids those who desire to do so to love one another and puts them out of the church. It's a loveless church. The individualistic Christian church at its worst. And then John makes this appeal. Beloved, beloved, do not imitate what is evil. In the context here, what is the evil he's referring to? It's lovelessness, not loving the brethren. That's evil. He then adds, the one who does good, the one who loves the brethren is of God, belongs to God. It's been changed by God. But the one who does evil, the one who does not love the brethren, he has not seen God. <clears throat> His eyes have not been open, uh, open to see the glory of Christ. He has not seen God. He does not know God. This is even the pastor of the church being called into question. You have two churches, two churches, one that brings joy, one that necessitates rebuke, all based upon the church's love for one another. So as we lead into the text this morning, let's ask this question, which church are we? Which church are we? Make it more personal. What kind of believer are you? Do we love one another? Love here. Christian love fills Jesus' final goodbye. 
In fact, the, in fact, these six verses here, they're the heart of Jesus's final farewell. Everything leads to this, flows out of it. And here's what Jesus does. He gives us six motivations for why we must love the family of God, why we must be this Christian loving one another church. Why we must let an individualized Christianity go. Why we must forgive one another. Again, love one another. We looked at the first three motivations last week. Let me just state them for you. Motivation number one, Motivation number one, we are to love one another because we are commanded to love. This is not an option. This is not a suggestion. This is my commandment, Jesus says. This is the law from the Lord. We love one another. We're commanded to love. Second, motivation number two, we're to love one another because we are each recipients of the greatest and most precious love recipients of the greatest and most precious love possible. That's verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life, sacrifice himself. Jesus is speaking about what he is about to do on the cross. He will die for his friends. And then Jesus says, verse 14, you are my friends. I'm dying for you, selflessness. The application is this, my laying down my life for you in love necessitates you following suit for one another. If Christ offered himself for us, how can we withhold our love for those purchased by Christ? How is that even possible? And then motivation number three, we are to love one another because every believer is a friend of Christ. Every believer is a friend of Christ. Notice verse 15. No longer do I call you slaves, but I have called you friends, dear ones, loved ones. And again, we saw this last time in the first century, friendship meant loyalty, it meant devotion. The contrast is stark here. We are not mindless tools as slaves are thought to be in the first century. No, we are cherished confidants of the king. Christ hasn't kept us at arm's length. It's how slaves are treated, no. We've been taken into his trust. It's amazing. We're like Moses, a friend of God. Like Abraham, he was called a friend of God. We're friends of Christ. We've been brought into the king's royal court. The king has promised, promised us his loyalty and devotion and care. Again, the application. If that is the identity of every believer, friends of Christ, how can we not treat one another as beloved friends? Why would we ever treat them as our enemies? How can we rightly withhold our loyalty and our devotion and our care 
from those whom Christ has given his loyalty, his devotion, and his care. We're to love one another because every believer is a friend of Christ, the King of Kings. So all that brings us then to this morning, the final three motivations. They just keep building on one another. We keep feeling the weight of Jesus' words. We'll focus in on verse 16. This morning, final three motivations. Motivation number four. Motivation number four. Why are we to love? We are to love one another because we were chosen by God from eternity past in love. We were chosen by God from eternity past in love. Let's pick it up in verse 16. Jesus says, you did not choose me. It's clear, you did not choose me. And and keep this choosing in the context of what Jesus just has said in verse 15. Jesus is not talking about choosing them to the office of apostle. He's talking about choosing them to be his friends, his confidants, to be recipients of his eternal and saving love, recipients of his loyalty and care. That's the choosing. Jesus is talking about the salvation of their soul. He chose them to be rescued from sin and Satan and judgment. And we know that's the choosing Jesus is referring to because of verse 19. Notice verse 19. Jesus uses the same word and he says this, you are not of the world. It's a reference to the domain of darkness ruled by Satan, destined for divine destruction. You are not of this world. Why? It's not because you chose not to be of this world. It's not because you asked to be delivered from this world. No, your deliverance, your rescue, the rescue of every believer from this evil world system, continue verse 19, is because Christ chose us out of the world. I chose you out of this world. Same word as the divine sovereign choosing, initiative. I chose you by grace, mercy. You take no credit for this choosing. It's my choosing. It's based upon undeserved love. No wonder Paul writes Ephesians 1. Paul writes in Ephesians 1 this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I praise you, God the Father. Why? Why are you so worthy of praise and worship? Here's why. Because he chose us. When? Before the foundation of the world. And what is this based upon and only upon? In love. That's the connection. He chose us in love. Brings us our praise, our worship. And Jesus here in John 15, he's reminding these men of their undeservedness, their unworthiness in and of themselves to carry that title, friend of Jesus. None of us are worthy of that title. in the context of this night, 
This was a necessary reminder for these men. Given what they were just doing moments before in the upper room, it's amazing to think about, yet we do this so often. Jesus is humbling himself to wash their feet and listen to Luke 22. What are they doing? There arose a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. And we read that, I'm like, how, Peter? How, Matthew? And then just think, how often do we do this? We don't argue with anyone because we already know the answer. It's us. Love for self, not love for one another, ruled their hearts. Arrogant pride, not selfless care, filled the room. And so Jesus not only serving them, but here reminding them of his choice, he levels the field for them. Jesus' answer to the question, which one of you are the greatest? The answer is this, none of you. None of you is the greatest. You're each my friends. No one is better than the other. And it's not because you chose me No, you're my friends because I chose you. Let's connect this to the vine branch parable. I'm the one who chose to sever you from this world. I'm the one who chose to graft you to the vine. Let's connect this to Christ's coming cross. I'm the one who chose to live the perfect life on your behalf. I'm the one who chose to pay for your sins by enduring my Father's holy wrath on your behalf. I'm the one who chose to conquer sin for you. I'm the one who will send my spirit to indwell you. Why? Because I'm the one who chose you in love, in grace. How humbling. This is what divine election does. It humbles the proud heart. It levels the field. It rebukes the arrogant. And if we understand divine election rightly, it creates a loving church, not a proud church. The application is this. We will love one another only when we realize we have nothing to boast about within ourselves. Isn't that the truth? We will love one another only when we realize we have nothing to boast about within ourselves. Let's put it this way. We will love one another only when we realize that none of us is greater than the other. Or put it this way, we will love one another only when we grasp the undeservedness of Christ's love for us and recognize our unworthiness of his calling. Only when we see the magnitude of his choosing of us. That creates love for one another. It'll be on the screen. If you want to turn to Colossians 3, I want you to see this. The Apostle Paul makes the same connection, grasping the eternal love of God and then showing a love for each other. Colossians chapter 3, notice Paul is leading to a certain call. 
It's at the very end. Beyond all these things, put on love. That's what he's driving to. But he doesn't start there. Doesn't start there. No, he builds to that. How so? Well, he grounds, first and foremost, our love for one another. He grounds that in God's loving choice of us. Notice the very beginning. So, as those who have been chosen of God and beloved, based upon that divine love, be reminded of this, your unworthiness, God's eternal decision, be reminded of his loving election of you. Here's the natural outgrowth. Here it is. Based upon that, put on a heart of compassion. You've been loved by God, shown compassion by God. Now show the compassion of God to others. Put on kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Watch bearing with one another and forgiving each other. And then verse 14, and put on love. Why do we put on love? Because we have been chosen in love. Again, the application. If it is true that holy, perfect, righteous, divine, eternal Jesus has chosen to bestow his love upon me, sinful me, undeserving me, how arrogant must I be, how much pride must I have if I am not willing to bestow my love on those whom God loves. As loved in grace before the foundation of the world. 1 John 4, 19, we will love one another only to the depth that we grasp that he first loved us. God's gracious choice is what frees us to love one another. Again, that's the connection. Look back at John 15, verse 15, or 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Here's the application now from Jesus what we've talked about. I chose you to be loved by me, but be my friends and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, bear the fruit of love. We start seeing it this way. Loving one another is not a burden. It's a privilege based upon God's choosing of us. It's the fourth motivation Jesus gives, we love one another because we were chosen to love and chosen in love. Let's look at a fifth motivation. After looking back at electing love, Jesus now points them to eternity future. I love this. Continue verse 15. He says, I've appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. You've been chosen in love, now appointed to love And through that fruit of Christian love, here's Jesus's promise, and that your fruit would remain. Remaining fruit, abiding fruit, enduring fruit. Let's put it this way, motivation number five. 
We are to love one another because our love carries with it eternal significance. We are to love one another because our love carries with it eternal significance. I draw that from Jesus' phrase that your fruit would remain. Again, this is remaining fruit, enduring fruit, and here's how I interpret it. I'll tell you why in a second. I interpret this remaining fruit as unbelievers who come to saving faith through our love for one another. That's the fruit that remains, endures. Here's why I understand it that way. Because that word remain here is the word meno. It's the word abide. It's abiding fruit. And it's the same word Jesus has used 10 times through verses one through 11 when he described what? Saving faith. Look at verse five. I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides, remains, in me, trusts in me, believes in me, I will abide, remain in him. I'll indwell him, seal him through my spirit. Verse six, though, again, gives the flip side. If anyone does not abide, meno, endure, who does not remain in me, believe in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. They gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. So you have heaven and hell determined upon whether someone abides, remains in Christ. And now here in verse 16, Jesus uses that same word abide to describe our fruit, fruitfulness. The fruit our love for one another will produce. Our love for one another leads to abiding fruit, remaining fruit. I think this is just another way of saying John 13, 34. Turn back there. John 13, 34 through 35. I think this is a repeat in different words. 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. That's exactly John 15, exactly. Well, notice the conclusion, the application Jesus makes in verse 35. By this, by your love for one another, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have a love for one another. So the fruit of Christian love is the salvation of sinners. That's the fruit of Christian love. That's the fruit that remains, endures, abides. In fact, that's the image Jesus used back in John 4. Behold, look on the fields. Look out, look on the fields. They are white for the harvest, and then he calls his apostles to gather fruit. Those sinners who have come to saving faith, gather that fruit. It's abiding fruit, remaining fruit. Gather that fruit for eternal life. So apparently, that 1960s song was right 
You're thinking, what song is that? It's probably the only thing the 60s got right, and it's no offense to anyone who loved the 60s here. Don't sing the song, just say it, okay? What the world needs now is love, not sweet love. What the world needs now is what? Christian love. What the world needs now is a love for one another from the church, from the people of God. Why? Because, verse 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have this love. Why? Chapter 15, verse 16, because our love for one another produces that abiding fruit, the salvation of souls. This is the eternal significance our love for one another carries. When unbelievers... When unbelievers are able to see this kind of unique and special and selfless and sacrificing love, not based upon age or gender or nationality or skin color, not based upon personal likes or hobbies, when they're able to see a love for one another based upon our love for Christ, primarily, unbelievers see that kind of Christian love, they witness something that has no counterpart in their life and no explanation other than Christ. It's so unique to this world. Mark Dever put it this way. Our Christ-like love for one another is intended by God to be the church's most powerful tool of evangelism. I think that's what we need to ask ourselves. What would the Lord say about our church? Our evangelism. The mutually loving relationships in the church are designed by God to be attractive to an unbelieving culture. The covenantal, careful, corporate, cross-cultural cross-generational love that is to characterize the church and glorify God is at the same time intended to evangelize the world, to produce that fruit that remains. Could even put in the words of Tim Chester, he writes this. Often people dismiss intellectual arguments, but they find it much harder to dismiss the compelling witness of the Christian community. It is easy for the world to ignore a solitary Christian living consistently as a believer. He or she can be dismissed as eccentric. But when a diverse group of Christians lives for Christ as a community of love and demonstrates mutual affection, then society will find it harder to dismiss them. That is so true. Our love has no counterpart in the world. And this is why we have spent the last eight months as leadership honestly evaluating our gospel impact in this valley and in our neighborhoods, at our workplaces, communities. And asking that question, are we producing fruit that remains? 
Are we seeing men and women grafted to the one true vine through our loving witness? Is that happening? Are we fulfilling John 13 and John 15? Are we that compelling community? So this is why we've restructured our home group ministry. You'll hear more about this weeks to come. Calling these home groups here, we're calling them home discipleship groups. Discipleship encompassing not only a love for one another, but then that love overflowing, go and make disciples. These are groups that will grow in a love together, apply God's word together, and then reach that unbelieving neighborhood, community where we live, workplaces with the gospel. May we never underestimate our love for one another. Our love carries with it eternal significance. It produces fruit that remains. Which then leads to, back to John 15, leads to that sixth motivation. Sixth motivation that we see here. We are to love one another, motivation number six, because that is God's way of aligning our will to his will. Loving one another is God's way of aligning our will to his will. So let's finish verse 16. Why should we love one another? Jesus says, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Read the promise again. So that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This is the third time now in this final goodbye, Jesus promises answered prayer. But the promise here is different. There's something, something Jesus adds. Look back at John 14, 13. John 14, 13, the first time Jesus refers to answered prayer, he says this, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. We want answered prayer, align ourselves with his glory, his honor, his will. Chapter 15, verse seven, second time, Jesus promises answered prayer. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Again, what is the condition here? My words must, Christ's words must abide in us. We must ask our prayers according with his word, his will, his ways. The fourth promise of answered prayers in John 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Again, the condition, ask in my name according to my will. Notice John 15, 16 again. We still must pray in Christ's name. That's the condition given here, right? Ask the Father in my name. But note the so that. Jesus adds the condition to love one another here. Love one another so that my Father will answer your prayers in the affirmative. Jesus is connecting answered prayer with the fruit of Christian love. 
So how are, we make, how are we to make sense of this connection between love for one another and answered prayer? What's the connection here? Well, think about it this way. When we love one another, just as Christ has loved us, when we love one another truly, rightly, we are leaving our selfish wills behind, aren't we? And we're fulfilling God's will, his command. When we love one another, we are more concerned with Christ's honor than our own honor. You can think about what takes place when we actually and intentionally love our fellow believers. When we are loving one another, we are forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven us. When we love one another, we're extending the same forgiveness we have been given. When we are loving one another, we are giving preference to one another in honor. We're showing the humility of Christ. When we love one another, we're accepting one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. To love one another means that we will be hospitable to one another, and underline this, without complaint. To love one another means we will be of the same mind toward one another, not haughty in mind. It means that we will be seeking to be at peace with one another and bear one another's burdens. We'll be actively seeking no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. And there's more. When we love one another, it means we'll be confessing our sins to one another. When we offend them, it means we'll be encouraging one another, building one another up, exhorting one another, stimulating one another to love in good deeds, not forsaking our assembling together, serving one another, not envying one another, not speaking evil against one another, on the list goes. This is what it looks like to love one another just as Christ loved us. We seek to have that patience and kindness permeate our relationships. Make sure we're not easily provoked. We're gracious and generous. We're not jealous of one another. We're joyful when others are blessed. We're not arrogant. We're not seeking our own. We're not taking into account a wrong suffered. Again, the list goes on. That's what happens when we love one another. So the point is simply this. When love for one another drives our actions and permeates our thinking and directs our affections, how can we not pray in Jesus' name? We're forgiving one another. We're not bitter. We're patient. We're kind. How can we not pray according to his honor? How can we not pray for his glory? Letting go of our glory. But in the context of answered prayer here, love for the brethren is God's ordained way of breaking our pride. 
and humbling our heart and suffocating our selfishness and sanctifying our souls. It's his ordained way of aligning our wills to his will and thus turning our prayers to his purposes. So much so, Jesus can promise whatever you ask of my Father in my name, when you devote yourself to love one another, the Father will give it to you. Astounding promise here, connected to our love. And thus, in light of all these motivations, why would we ever hold on to any bitterness toward our fellow believers? Just think through that. Why would we ever hold on to bitterness to others within this family? Why would we ever bite and devour one another behind their backs? Why would we ignore one another or treat one another as a bother rather than a friend? That only happens, that only happens when we in pride forget that we were chosen by God in gracious, merciful love. That only happens when we in short-sightedness forget that our love for one another carries with it eternal significance. And it only happens when we forget that Christian love is God's way of aligning our will to his will, the path to answered prayer. J.C. Ryle's words are so true. He writes this, may we never think too highly of love, attach too much weight to it, or labor too much to practice it. Father, you have given us quite a call command from your son. We are thankful that through your spirit, you have poured out your love, first of all, into our hearts and our prayers that that love would overflow in a love for each other in this room. Yes, Lord, we pray that you would convict us allow us to feel the weight of this call and change us. We would not just love those who are like us. We begin to reach out to others within this family that you have knit together. We're thankful that we can do this because you first loved us. We're thankful for the cross, thankful for your grace, your forgiveness. May it overflow to us obeying this command from our Savior. Pray this in Christ's name, amen.